2: Hey, everybody, it is me, your partially reticulated polyurethane foam uncle, Jake Bruiser, and uh, Holden is still on paternity leave, so to fill in his place, I needed an expert above experts when it comes to foam flinging, the number, uh, at least top seven YouTube uh, nerf experts online, Uh, honest to God, an amazing content creator and an amazing uh, nerf enthusiast, Drac, from the internet, from YouTube. How you doing?
3: Thanks so much for having me today, Jake. I'm always excited to talk foam flinging entertainment, <laughs> foam flinging nonsense. I like the polyurethane lead in. We've got polyurethane <laughs> darts now, so that's that's tight.
2: Oh, you got it. You got you got to have the urethane, man. It's it was a vital it was a vital product in the term of commodity plastics that built this entire empire. It's guys, it's nerf for nothing. That's the episode title for today. That's what we're covering, and uh, I honestly. I, we did an episode on Lego. We've done episodes on different uh, kind of character-based toy franchises, and Nerf was a weird challenge because it's it's it has its own attitude, it has its own identity, and it has its own niche within the toy play space, and it has a vibrant fandom community. Of uh, everyone from kids to adults, nerfers, I believe is the correct term. Am I wrong on that?
3: No, nerfers. Nerfers, for lack of a less uh, less less trademarked term, is, oh. is certainly what we call ourselves. I mean, we are we are nerfers. I tried to slip the foam flinger in there earlier because we're big fans of alliteration, but uh, <laughs> for the for the time being, we are we are still certainly we're the Nerf community, the NIC Nerf Internet Community. Uh, We consider ourselves Nerfers and the events that we attend are still called Nerf Wars Mm -hmm. for as long as that (laughs) remains politically kosher. Um, But uh, I like I like that you've done other episodes on other like classic toys, especially in a world where toys are getting, you know, constantly rebooted and and given new vitality. I mean, He-Man has a brand new reboot. And his own identity, GI Joe is constantly getting movies and spin-offs by like major, major studios. In a world where Battleship is getting a blockbuster, <laughs> uh, I think that you know, Nerf definitely does, despite the fact that it doesn't necessarily have characters per se. It it has character. And that's everything from like your you know, your nineties commercials with Seth Green flipping oh. over mall escalators and, and shooting the the pulsator in his college bedroom and stuff like that to, to you know, the, the tinkering that goes into it, the, uh, the modifications, the applications to cosplay and greater nerddom. Um, and then even the professional sphere of that, where you have, you know, the sci-fi channel has been using the same set of 10 long shots for every independently <laughs> thing that they've done.
2: So one of the things I'd, I really want to get into is the kind of, the weird paradox of nerf because it's by its very nature supposed to be a safe toy. Uh, we'll get into its earliest histories and its foundations, but like by its very, the word nerf is used colloquially to mean to make something less dangerous, to make something less effective. And the whole point of nerf is that these are products for children that won't knock over a lamp or, destroy property or cause undue welting or, you know,
3: no, I mean, absolutely. The original Nerf product would have been the Nerf ball, which, you know, pre-blaster anything was the entire stick was you could play with this ball inside in a world where mom was kicking you out in the (laughs) seventies to go play outside with your, your football or your, your soccer ball or what have you. uh, It was like, well, if you want to play in the living room, you can use this incredibly soft Nerf ball. Uh, so you're you're absolutely right, and then the the caveat is that there's been a real run up of performance, uh, both hobbyist and industrial, uh, in terms of like, well, how do we how do we unnerf it? Um, so to speak.
2: exactly that like very quickly into the toys run, all of a sudden we had things that you know were uh, super max force and power tech and laser power and cyber strike yeah with ball blasting action strike ultra elite like things you know the 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 promise of a nerf battle of holding these guns in your hand and i'm sorry blasters guns are a very controversial thing gun you don't buy your kids guns anymore uh you buy kids blasters everyone loves a blaster (laughs) But the click of the plastic latches all getting together, the resistance of the spring, the release of the trigger, like there's a there's a there's a kinetic energy and a fun to playing with Nerf blasters that, you know, it's striking that balance between power and safety is fascinating to me. And then how the community chooses to uh, modify and upgrade and kind of iterate on these designs while still staying within the nerf sphere because you know at a certain point there is a uh, higher velocity higher kinetic more uh you know whether it's uh airsoft or paintball or running around uh, in a larp and like just whacking each other with <laughs> dense foam swords like if the, if you want to run around and build up a sweat and physically hurt people you can do that but there's but then something is lost in it there's something magical about that that nerf zone that I find amazing.
3: I don't know. It's, it's really hard to capture and It's something that, I mean, obviously companies have been trying to capture for years because if you can figure out that, that magic formula, that nerfy goodness, if you will, like you've truly uh, given people a safe, fun way to play that makes them feel like they're 10 years old again. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a nostalgia focused culture, that's very consumerist (laughs) right now, (laughs) Uh, The fact that Nerf is is safer than airsoft paintball is less expensive than, you know, all of these other things uh, is is really special for the hobby and for the people who play it. And then more, I guess, importantly, it kind of captures that childhood imagination and lets you. Have that basement battle that reminds you of you know pizza nights with your siblings in n sixty four and N64 and, <laughs> and stuff like that, and then all of the the modifications and the the paint jobs and the accessories, tactical gear et cetera like that just sort of supplements that experience and as long as you stay in that proverbial you know toy box uh so to speak, you you're not departing into this realm of like, oh, I'm gonna go, you know beat Chris Kyle and kill my friends on a battlefield. Um, and, uh, and the, the distinction between blaster and gun definitely helps with that. I think in a lot of ways, like uh, Buzz Lightyear has a blaster.
2: He doesn't have a gun. Like, so I uh, just to, just to gush, just to get it out of the way, I am very much a nineties kid. I can like looking back on the original nerf line of uh, kinetic toys, I guess before, Yes, there's the football with the vortex shape so that even a chubby, weird geek can throw a spiral and feel like an athlete for a beautiful brief moment. There's the Nerf hoop basketball so you can, like, do tiny little slam dunks on your doorframe. Like, oh, that's very good. But obviously, when we're talking about Nerf, we're talking about the shooty, poppy, make-foam-go-flying toys.
3: Projectile-flinging implants, gotcha. So, what was your favorite?
2: So, growing up, I was—I'm old enough that the blastomatic and the bow and arrow were my first toys that I had in the Nerf line, and even that—that that rudimentary thing, those like, uh, you know, they weren't even shaped like anything. It was just plastic tubes connected to plungers. Uh, it was so much fun, you know. There was no chance of breaking a window. You could play indoors on a rainy day, and you could just like wail on friends and like. Uh, go scrambling for the ammo as it flew around the room. And it was such a, like, just a just a pure, like, id. Just a giddy amount of fun where, like, it's, it's almost, the fun reaches beyond words. You are just giggling and scrambling around, dodging, firing, and just so much fun. Uh, you know, eventually, you know, the one rich kid shows up with his arrow storm. Another kid shows up with, like, two sharpshooters. And like, I don't, you know, by the time we got to the 2000s, I was kind of done with it. And then in the, uh, just later on in my younger adulthood, seeing how the blaster technology has advanced and how now you had clips and chain guns and sniper rifles and all oh these boy. different things going on were great for college and office, uh, scenarios. Uh, you know, the, the secret Nerf assassin games and humans versus zombies, And all these ways to kind of, once again, rekindle that fun were like super key to me. Uh, And nowadays I look at the stuff like Rival and Hyper and all these like, the, the ways that they're trying to like up the game and i find it fascinating and i don't know what to think about it it's also nerf fencing i didn't i forget nerf fencing is an amazing toy and they should reintroduce it so they they kind of
3: they sort of did revisit the nerf uh the nerf fencing i guess when they did enforce so <laughs> enforce would have been the late odds and that would have been your uh
2: foam battle axe foam sword your, your marauder long sword your warlock
3: battle axe your your mace and then the uh in particular, the closest we got to nerf fencing would have been the the ninja swords, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then there was one that was like a Darth Maul lightsaber called the Vantage swords that split off into two, and that was pretty sweet. So uh, they've definitely they've they flirted with the the melee option back and forth again. I think that there's there's more liability attached to something where they don't have control over the <laughs> the power output. I mean, but uh, but you're absolutely right. There's something. Especially like going back to the uh, the blastomatic and the bow and arrow. My favorite blaster would be the uh, the ninety five crossbow, mm. which is just an absolute delight because it fires pretty much any ammo you can shove onto or in it. It's a very versatile uh, blaster with good stored energy, but uh, picking up picking up ammo out from like underneath the couch to reload, turn and fire is like probably the closest thing I have to like an Amelie moment, like, a, <laughs> like one of those those simple pleasures that you. Uh, Like finding the reactor ball under the couch in your moment of great need is a, is a good hero moment that makes any kid feel like Master Chief.
2: So Uh, what about, what about you? What was like an iconic blaster that like cemented your love for this brand?
3: So as much as I really love the 95 crossbow, I think that the one that really cemented it for me was the, uh, the Firefly, which was a revolver rifle bullpup. (laughs) <laughs> amalgamation that never should have existed uh but it had a bulb in it where every time you fired it the firefly would charge so it was like back in the day when you still had to. Put, oh,
2: this thing
3: yeah you still had to put stickers on your toys and that's like the coolest thing that like i feel like today's kids don't understand that like you used to get a sticker sheet and you had to decorate your own toy whether it was castle Skull or a lego set from like aquanauts or what have you like you were doing the decorating on your own and so the firefly had these stickers that were uv reactive glow-in-the-dark paper that you would put on suction cup darts mm-hmm. and they made the darts unequivocally worse like they were <laughs> worse you never applied them correctly but it almost didn't matter because every time you pulled the trigger, a flash bulb would go off inside the translucent cylinder. There was reflective tape all inside it to make sure that all of the good, good light energy made it onto your dart. And when you fire it, there would be like a five second delay as this dart would glow and then fade.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I don't know if it was that it felt like it was some sort of like laser weapon from a sci-fi novel, <laughs> or if it was that it was fun to play within the dark. I think that the fact that it had the added ability to, you know, even after you would lost the darts, you could still run around pulling the trigger and you had like a flash cannon. Like if you, if you ever took a long bus ride and you had the old disposable cameras and you were completely out of picture taking ability, but you would still be playing flashlight tag in the back of the bus, the firefly could do a much better, uh, role play version of that, uh, for flashlight tag in the woods. And, uh, I just thought the flash, the, uh, the firefly was great. Mm. Uh, Eight darts, extra dart capacity in the back. It fit like my gangly teenage form pretty well, <laughs> I guess. And uh and it was it was a reliable, a reliable blaster right up until the point that I think I jumped in a pool with it. And the combination of electronic flashbulb technology powered by alkalines. And chlorine was unkind to the Firefly Reve.
2: I'm glad. I'm glad that's. Uh, I'm glad you have a positive one. I'm looking at the list now, and and by list I mean list within list within list. The Nerf Wiki is incredibly expansive, and I congratulations to the community that manages this. Uh, I got reminded of the Eagle Eye, which was my first major Nerf disappointment because all the ads and the box made it think that it had an actual laser sight. It
3: is a flashlight. Yeah.
2: Oh, it is just a flashlight with a red gel in front of it. And I got so sad, definitely sadder than a child should be over a uh, Nerf gun when I got that for uh, a Hanukkah way back in the day. But let us get into yield history. How did these blasters make their way into the hearts of the American children? Well, It all starts with um, a weird German scientist. (laughs) Uh, It starts with a weird German scientist, uh, Otto Bayer, who in 1937 figured out how to make a fluffy plastic polyurethane foam by adding a monomer uh, source with a catalyst and various gas blowing agents, as it's called. And it quickly, along with various other plastic uh, revolutionary products, made their way into the American households. Polyurethane foams quickly replaced the natural sponge of your average kitchen sponge. It replaced uh, polyester in shoes and other uh, applications because of its increased resistance to water. And uh, in 1969, a guy named Rain Geyer uh, was, was living hot off the heels of his hit toy invention, Twister. That's right. What if a plastic mat had people climbing on each other on it? <laughs> Rain Geyer had that admission. Him and his dad. I don't know if that makes it better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what if the player was the pieces, which is, was kind of a core of his toy design philosophy? Um, he started his own company, uh, tried to give up his... Uh, it, it was, it was a, he writes extensively on his website about how he felt bad because he was in business with his father at the time and his father wanted to abandon the toy company and stick to store displays. But the Nerf story uh, basically boils down to he starts his own uh, enterprise called Windsor Concepts in, I believe, Cleveland, Ohio, and he uh, sets up to to recapture that twister magic, to find a new uh, board game that he can sell and make money off of. And um, one of his employees at the time, a man by the name of... Uh, Norton Cross had an idea for a very weird game in which you lay out these stones across a floor, like these plastic kind of uh, mats that you lay out on the floor and which players hide coins underneath them. And as you... It was supposed to have like a caveman theme. And as you hop from stone to stone and look for coins, other players can thwart you by throwing these... uh, crudely carved stones made from this fancy sponge material that was all the rage at the time. And I believe the quote is, We took a couple of, this is from uh, Rain Geyer's personal website, We took a couple of the foam rocks and started tossing them around. Soon, an all-out battle ensued as we pelted each other with the rocks. As the laughter faded, we all realized that something very exciting had just happened. We were five supposedly adult men hurling chunks of foam at each other, but no one was hurt. We had inadvertently created the world's first indoor ball and broken the parental rule, no throwing balls in the house. And it makes, it's very funny to me that like immediately, as soon as like before even the idea of like, what if it was basketball or what if it was football? The first true aha moment was a nerf battle. Rain takes the, uh, takes the foam ball concept to Milton Bradley, who had, uh, created, who had published, I guess, in the toy space, you call it published, uh, Twister. And they were like, nah, we're bored. We don't want to make a new game. We're already selling so many goddamn games. We don't need you. He takes it to Parker Brothers and uh, sets up all these elaborate play sets. Here's the football play set. Here's the basketball play set. Here's every, you know, here's, here's the baseball play set. Parker Brothers is like, screw that. Just give us the ball. And so they introduce the Nerf ball. And it's just a simple, a a simple foam ball. There's no outer coating. There's no nothing. Uh, It comes in a little square box and it has that nice hippy, dippy, groovy, late 60s graphic design on it. It's called the world's first indoor ball. And the ad copy on the box says safe. The Nerf ball is made of incredibly soft and spongy synthetic foam. Throw it around indoors. You can't damage lamps or break windows. You can't hurt babies or old people. Which uh, I didn't even think about the uh, pandemic of babies getting smashed in the face by baseballs that must have been happening in early 60s households. It was a real I'm concern. glad they solved it. <laughs> a problem
3: that needed solving, I have no doubt. <laughs>
2: God damn it, Billy! Why did you just smack Grandma in the face with a full-sized basketball? If oh, there's got to be a better way, <laughs> uh, Actually, uh, just to just to confirm how how bouncy, trouncy, late '60s, the original Nerf ball was. Uh, I believe there is footage you can find on. Uh, play some of that. Uh, this is this is the this is actual the Monkeys. Hey hey, we're the Monkeys. Davy Jones, uh, Nesmith, all those guys. Uh, playing with Nerf balls in an ad in uh, 1970. Just play a little bit of that audio. Hey, let's play
1: ball. In
2: the house? Sure. Hey, what are those things anyway? They're Nerf balls. Spongy foam. That doesn't hurt anything. Nerf balls. You got your Nerf. And so the line is a hit. Uh, We get the uh, Nerf ball. We get the super Nerf ball. We get the Nerf hoop for indoor basketball. And uh, there's various other products. You can play Nerf pool you can uh, they make little nerf cars that you can race and collide with stuff, and nothing really matters. But it's not until uh, I, I don't want to talk about all this corporate stuff, but um, Parker Brothers merges with Kenner, who is famous for making action figures, the Star Wars action figures, plastic crack. You must have heard of that. Um, Tonka then buys Kenner, and then uh, Hasbro buys Tonka, and the end result is, is the nerf brand is expanded with these original blasters. Uh, the blast that shoots little foam balls, the bow and arrow that shoots little uh, arrows. <laughs> uh, quickly, an arms race begins to develop, as each iteration of nerf thing must be uh, enhanced, uh, you like the blastomatic. Now there's the master blaster with double barrels. You like the bow and arrow. Now there's the missile storm and the arrow storm that has rotating barrels. Like it all kind of uh, it all kind of uh, is it feels innocent compared to the elaborate designs and tactical uh, direction that the nerf line ended up going. But there was already an edge to it. Um, no, it's you a, mentioned it's a the war. For, yeah. It's,
3: it's yeah. a product development war to, you know, justify, you know, the ends must justify the means. Nerf superiority at any cost. It's uh, <laughs> every year you've got to be better equipped for the birthday party than the year before. And, you know, I think that that's sort of been the impetus in the marketing since the very beginning. It's a... Uh, you know, more onboard ammo, bigger ammo, faster rate of fire, longer ranges. Like you touched on it earlier when you were talking about the uh, the lines and just the names that have been coming out. And if we <laughs> pick just the most recent ones, if nothing else, we have Hyper Mega Elite. <laughs> like it. It sounds like is Hasbro selling blaster toys or energy drinks some of the time?
0: <laughs> like
2: the so the marketing. Honestly, the marketing for these toys very quickly gets that 90s edge. And, you know, uh, we've hit on this uh, early to mid-90s marketing. What if you took things to the next level? It's the kind of thing that little sisters hate. Like this very aggro boy-focused marketing that really just like is, is, uh, it's euphoric to a kid that maybe might be a little bit insecure, maybe wants to feel like a rebel. Um, If we can play a little bit of the Nerf slingshot ad that had Seth Green uh, doing a bad uh, Wayne's World impression with his uh, less famous friend while they were terrorizing people in a mall. Uh, You get a very good vibe on what the Nerf marketing voice was quickly becoming.
3: What's better than hitting the mall? Hitting it with a Nerf slingshot. Allow us to demonstrate proper usage whilst you frolic. Locate target. Baby alert.
2: Target located. Consequently, we can hit on them. Long distance! You gotta love it! I'd say that the most notable of these original line toys has to be the sharpshooter. Because it has a lot of things that will become kind of... de to like the core of what makes a nerf blaster can you tell me about the sharpshooter from 1992 so the uh
3: the sharpshooter from 1992 is is really common iconography for a nerf blaster whereas like most people today might think of the revolver the maverick the six shooter uh the sharpshooter is the first blaster to really look like a blaster and fire darts kind of as we know them the the micro darts or at the time they were called sharpshooter darts but it's got that that really sick 90s kind of deco on it between the vintage nerf logo the like neon pops of color for the trigger and the pull tab and then the deep purples like it screams a vintage blaster but at the time it was the first like real handheld pistol with everything from the the pull tab the stored energy so you pull it back you get the click noise as you engage the catch mechanism and then you know that you've got one dart chambered up and ready to go i mean it's got it's got sights that double as dart holders, and it uh, it was it was pretty sweet. It also had a successor in the form of Sharpshooter Two, and I'm pretty sure it uh, it's capable of taking down Cree soldiers. But it was a uh, it was a pretty it was a
2: pretty cool. One. Yeah, so it feels like for it feels like the core design, the core mechanism of the sharpshooter is pretty much replicated in every standard. I, I believe, what is, Springer is the term in, in in the Nerf community? Right,
3: so there's there's four flavors of, of blaster technology and you would be <laughs> absolutely correct in that the the, uh, the Sharpshooter kind of iconographies the design of a Springer blaster in that it has a plunger with a spring that when you pull it back, it kind of has air negative space inside and then when you release that the spring pushing the air forward creates pressure and presses the dart out through a barrel so since it's spring powered that would be a springer mm-hmm. the other categories just for for fun are uh air powered blasters and that's where like Lonnie Johnson comes into play and uses his stored air pressure from super soaker tanks uh to, to propel darts pneumatically so <laughs> to speak so those are air blasters then you have uh, electronic blasters which are Frequently referred to as flywheelers, just because we don't really have a lot of AEGs in the hobby. Uh, most things use two powered flywheels on motors to grab the dart and fling them forward, almost like how a uh, a baseball pitching machine works. Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, if you're not abundantly familiar, and then I guess the uh, the fourth one, which is very rarely uh, comes up, is called a stringer. Uh, which is sort of a take-on Springer, and that's where you use some sort of elastic or bow power to actually physically fire the dart. Now, uh, the Vintage Blaster, the the bow and arrow is kind of like a hybrid, your favorite from your childhood, (laughs) is both Springer and Stringer because... It has a string that doesn't actually provide any tension or power. <laughs> and it also doesn't have the catch mechanism. So there's no stored energy. So it's effectively a sharpshooter with no catch. Great. Where you pull it back and just release it to fire the arrows.
2: And so, I th- honestly, those little darts, the little suction cups, the uh, pistol uh, uh, est- uh, not uh, kinesthetics of it really kind of, it has to be a runaway hit because after that point, it feels like the Nerf line kind of chases that dragon for the, uh, up until the modern era.
3: About, about 30 years of, of blaster arms race <laughs> ensues, absolutely. Uh,
2: so uh, things start getting a little bit weird because I feel like uh, something happens where they really can't make the guns more powerful. That's like it's it otherwise is no longer the... Safe, fun, indoor okay. plaything. I like the euphemism
3: there, Jake, where you're like, something happens, and the something is the law. <laughs>
0: <laughs> With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash.
1: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: And so in the late 90s, things get a little bit weird. Um, a lot of uh, weird designs. I'm thinking of the Max Force line that has uh, animal theming, including the Whiptail Scorpion. All right, I want to take it all back. People, uh, some of my favorite are from this line.
3: Between the Electric Eel and the Manta Ray, like... This is going to be a recurring theme, depending upon how long this episode goes, of me accidentally taking Nerf blasters into pools when I should have just had super soakers. <laughs> but uh, those ones, I, in my defense, the manta Ray looked like it belonged to them.
2: That's fair. It is an aquatic beast. The we had the cyber strike gear, which I think was trying to uh, get into that James Bond uh, Golden Eye. Uh, I feel like there was a lot of, like, spy gear toys that were happening at the time. It's half
3: James Bond, half make yourself a Borg. Like, it's really...
2: (laughs) Oh, you're talking about the Perceptor in which you wore the plunger and spring mechanism on your chest. It had the air go through a little rubber tube that was connected to a headband. And then you fired the darts
3: from your face like Scott Summers. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But uh, the entire Cyber Strike line was wearable. Like, even the... uh, even a lot of the pistols are like gauntlets. They have Mm -hmm. hand protectors on them and, and the ratchet blast is designed to be an extension of your arm with like an elbow swinging mechanism to prime it. Like they, uh, you're, you're supposed to join the Borg, I think with that
2: one. So this is okay. So definitely role play has something to do with the nerf experience. And, uh, one of the things when you go into all the different lines that happened along these ways is what do kids want to pretend to be while they're running around dodging foam, which I think is kind of fascinating. Uh, you know, we had the Max Force thing, which Animal Blast, I feel like by 94, 97, we still had like Ninja Turtles and Mutagens and the idea of like, animal technology, oh, Ninja Turtles. and then
3: the big thing that's pushing that is like you're, you've got the, the dino Rangers and mm-hmm. you know, power Rangers and stuff like that. I mean, you've got Animorphs on the shelf. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, there's a lot of animal powered children running around in pop culture. And
2: obviously I'm jumping around, but I feel like the next big step in the line is the end strike series.
3: I don't think that's a big leap at all. I think that that's, so, in strike is when it's it's the next major commercial catalyst for mm-hmm. for the brand, and it's when you know you go from it's always been nerf or nothing, but in strike is when compatibility becomes key, and everything really kowtows to the grander design of what if we abandon some of the, the creative elements, the the more fantastic industrial design and go pure tactical? Mm-hmm. Like what if we go from, you know, it's a it's a whip stinging scorpion or a Borg blaster. It looks like
2: something Captain Kirk would wield. <laughs>
3: yeah. They, they look like something that comes out of Star Trek or, or that Buzz Lightyear would have at Disney or, mm-hmm. or something along that line. Whereas um, in strike is when you finally start getting the, everything has scopes, everything has suppressors, or barrel extensions, and then everything as a stock attachment. But the biggest thing that InStrike brings above all else is the uniformity of the InStrike magazine system. Mm-hmm. We're now, instead of firing these, these suction darts and hitting windows or the whistler darts, which did the whew, when you fired them, now we're just back to basics, streamlined darts. They might not be accurate, but you could shove 12 of them in a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and rapidly reload from stock attachment points and all sorts of stuff. So you start getting things like the long shot, which is your, you know, your veritable sniper or DMR fantasy mm-hmm. kind of element to it. And then you have the Maverick, which is there's there's really no other way to describe a Maverick to your audience other than to say, like, before this episode, if I asked you to imagine a Nerf blaster, the Maverick is what you thought of. Yeah. It's the six shot space cowboy revolver. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's chunky. It's been reimagined in video games, um, and it's definitely like other. It's it's just classic. someone was
2: watching a lot of Trygun when they were when it was time to design the Maverick. I'll say that much. That might be.
3: The best way to describe it, actually. It's a chunky, (laughs) not quite Hellboy-esque revolver. Yeah,
2: yeah. During uh, the Sunday study session, which, by the way, if you go to uh, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, you can see how you can join the Sunday study group, and that is when we uh, live stream and go into the upcoming week's research alongside various patrons, and it's a real great hang. Uh, We tried to figure out, like, when was the shift from Space Blasters to, like, tactical. And it really feels like, uh, I'm looking at the timeline, uh, around 2007, 2008, there's a drastic shift in the design language. And that's when Call of Duty, uh, modern warfare comes out. Yep. And it feels like all of a sudden a, your average 12 year old now knows what a pickety rail is and knows the difference between a red dot and a holographic scope. And even the colors, uh, change from a dark blue to a hunter, orange, bright yellow. This is not a gun. Like hello, police officers. This is not a gun. So as soon as the silhouettes got really tactical like that, (laughs) the
3: colors had to brighten up fast. This is no longer your, your classic retro kind of, you know, dark purple, neon orange. This is, um, We're playing Assassin in a bush outside our middle school, and I need the school security officer not to take me to the ground when I bust out with my knife finder. And the knife finder is actually a really good example of that: is the smallest pistol in that transitory period. There is a period where the knife finder exists pre-in strike. Mm where it's midnight blue and it still feels like a vintage blaster and that's its first color scheme mm. and then as soon as in strike hits it becomes neon yellow gunmetal grip like it is a uh, it is ready to not be mistaken for anything dangerous
2: another noteworthy gun on this line is 2008's vulcan which in even at the time i remember being like oh wow like nerf is yeah, I, I, Would you call these like flagship guns or like, what do you call these large? So the, than life? Uh,
3: the, the large, we do call them flagship blasters. The large, I guess, holiday release over $50 juggernaut blaster is something that Hasbro revisits every two or three years. It's always way too big for your average preteen to wield. It's always more expensive than they're going to have the budget for anyway. And they're usually an excuse to do some over the top concept for you know, I mean it sets the tone for the line. And so the Vulcan being a veritable mini gun that you I mean, people have mounted them on top of Jeeps for parades. <laughs> this is this is the Nerf gun that when I don't even know if these guys are still around. Does anybody remember mana energy potion drinks?
2: Oh my God. Yes. Dear God, mana energy. Yes. Okay.
3: So those things were disgusting. Undoubtedly. Uh, I hope they're not. Any
2: energy drink that you bought unrefrigerated at a comic book store was not a good energy drink. And I refuse to debate. on I remember this.
3: they, they just tasted so bad because they were so concentrated. It was like, how do we squeeze an entire... You know, Red Bull into a shot glass shaped like a mana po- Anyway, I bring it up because when Mana Energy did their like, it was the first ever, I think, like cash modification contest mm-hmm. for Nerf Blasters, you had to use the Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like, okay, we don't want to see your. Your maverick or your long shot make the highest rate of fire, most energy extreme uh, version of the Vulcan, and some of the stuff that came out of that was insane. We had—I remember uh, kids on college campuses were like hooking them up to batteries plus car battery jumpers. Like it was, <laughs> it was pretty cool. And back in the day, the uh, the Vulcan was still being designed to to specs and tolerances where you could. You could overvolt it without frying it Mm. quite as easily. Like they were still, you know, manufacturing above the, uh, I guess the, the least fragile parts in those things. So you could do crazy stuff like hook a 12 volt car battery up to it and it would
2: run. You're telling me Hasbro was just throwing money away on reasonably quality gauge wiring. Disgusting. As a stockholder, I got to put a stop to this.
3: You're
2: you're too late. I joke. (laughs) Oh no. So- The end strike line kind of carries us into the from the two thousands into the twenty tens, and I guess uh, this is when we have to start talking about the rise of Nerf wars and uh, the modding community and kind of uh, how the former children of the Nerf generation. We're kind of growing up along with it. Uh, and this is something I really don't have firsthand experience with. like it, It's kind of a you had to be there kind of thing.
3: Well, luckily, luckily, I'm here for you, Jake. Um, <laughs> yes. So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be an OG if I didn't mention that. Nerf wars and hobbies and modifications are incubating just before this time. Like as InStrike is coming out, the Nerf internet community is is sort of waking up in IRCs, in forums, and they're starting to do these meetups. We have some of our oldest legacy events start happening and they're small, but it's like get together at the park, fire micro darts, of course, homemade micro darts at the time called Steffens after uh, one of the, the primary community's founders Um, but we're, we're shooting homemade darts that are held together. They're foam backer rod held together with washers, felt tips, BBs, hot glue, like we're we're really taking them beyond the point where it's like, this is a safe toy and into the territory of like, this is about as close to paintball as you can get without your clothes getting wet. So, wait,
2: what is, uh, what is, what is the Stefan darts do differently? How does it like affect performance?
3: So by virtue of having both just by being a heavier projectile, the same way that you can throw a baseball further than a, a ping pong ball, uh, you can get more energy behind them, but then by moving their center of gravity further towards the tip and, uh, creating a solid foam back end, you're effectively creating and I, I'm gonna butcher this word, uh, a foam sabo or oh, a yeah. flechette.
2: I watch Mythbusters, I know what a Sabo was.
3: Yeah, I I'm sure I pronounced neither of those words correctly, <laughs> but uh you're building a better projectile for distance shooting as opposed to something that's designed to hit, you know, a kitchen window ten feet away and stick to it. Um, so it's becoming more of what, uh, what now the hobby would call blaster tag. And these first wars are are really small. A lot of us are still using like barrel material from the local hardware shop. So we're shoving the CPVC barrels into our, you know, newly fabricated plunger systems with springs that are way too strong and reinforcing stuff with epoxy putty. And, you know, really just, we're, we're constantly fixing the thing that broke at the last event. Mm -hmm. So, that we can have something that lasts more than two hours into this event in a constant sort of arms race to be the kid who's tinkered something together that shoots the furthest the longest. So, these are almost, these first fours are almost like Le Mans style torture tests for these basement contraptions. where the penalty for failure is that you're going to lose a lot of games. That's
2: actually you bring up a, a point about um, the kind of homemade nature of the mod, of modding your Nerf guns because uh, you can buy a CO2 powered airsoft rifle, but like there's not you know there's tolerances there's like very fiddly little bits that your average person can't just like crack open with a Phillips head screwdriver and mess with the core uh, springer design is really. A plastic tube, a wider plastic tube, a spring and a latch. And like that, anybody can get their hands, their heads oh, it's, around. It's so elegant
3: in its simplicity. It's so beautiful in how easy it is to make it better that it, it almost seems like it's a STEM toy. If it wasn't explicitly <laughs> written on it everywhere, do not take this apart and modify it. Um <laughs> Now, to be fair, they also write on all of them, do not fire at animals or people. And like now they're literally making commercials, firing them at one another. So,
2: yeah, but now they include a cheap plastic face mask. So everything's kosher.
3: Exactly. Exactly. It's fine. It's it's really that their competition started doing it. So they were like, I guess we have to admit that kids shoot each other with these things. They
2: have <laughs> been all along. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's hilarious. It's I guess it's once the micro or not the I guess the elite darts or whatever you want to call the uh, non suction cupped uh, homogenized nerf dart that we're all pretty familiar with uh, got narrow enough that it could take an eye out under Uh. ideal circumstances they had to cover their butts because all those early Nerf ads are just people flinging balls and arrows at directly at point blank range. In each it is spaces. true.
3: It is true. The, the pulsator commercial, I believe is like three kids in a bedroom just with hundreds of rounds in the air, Um, <laughs> CGI rounds, no less, which go far faster. Um, so, uh, as, as that's incubating, like you said, the in strike platform launches and Nerf, uh, becomes cool all of a sudden. And it becomes cool right around the same revolution that we have in like two thousand, you know, nine through two thousand thirteen, it feels like, where all of a sudden, you know, it's okay to be nerdy mm-hmm. and there's superhero movies in theaters and The Walking Dead is the number one TV show on on the air and all of a sudden it's like zombies and even the hot, you know, girl superheroes and Spider-Man and stuff. And it, it I don't know how you feel about this Jake, but occasionally I feel like I died for this generation since like we were, we were really the last kids to get made fun of for being. Uh, I,
2: I accept it. I don't begrudge people. Uh, I see a hot girl with a Pikachu uh, phone case and I do not, I do not mutter in the darkness for how I was, uh, Uh, lambasted for playing a children's baby game. There's no
3: silent, you're welcome that you send her way. Like every time you're at the gym and the muscle bro is wearing a Thor
2: t-shirt. No, dear God, no. In fact, honestly, doing this podcast and getting into the history of a lot of this stuff, it is quite silly. This is all quite silly and you should not get too, uh, too upset that people are being silly with it when it all comes down to it. Um is there like a governing body that kind of starts arising for these nerf wars or or how is this play like kind of uh i guess uh, standardized
3: right so uh so the primary forums at the time are nerf haven and nerf revolution of which nerf haven is still around um and they kind of come up with less a uh, governing sort of body and more a governing set of rules and it's the same sort of rules that wind up in any sort of like subculture nerdy geek sphere which is like rule number one is don't be a jerk mm-hmm. rule number two is be nice to everybody so that you know theoretically there will be more of us next time and then the specifics that you're looking for are we come up with game types things like uh and that some of these are a little dated so you know pardon me here but uh the the overarching game type would be 315 which is everybody gets three lives 15 second response and then as Eight different derivations from like deathmatch, which is two teams, wingman, which is you get one partner and there's two man teams everywhere, mm-hmm. you get squads, you get 315 zombies, which at the end of which you know you're dead but you're a zombie now so you can go tag the living, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and so forth. Then you've also got scenario gameplay, uh, where we do you know your basic capture the flag stuff, but then my personal like favorite other than you know zone control or uh, anything with timers is uh, they came up with in the Northeast what they called carpe testiculum, which is <laughs> seize the ball. And effectively you take a bunch of like ball pit balls and throw them onto the field. And you just fight to see who can recover the most balls.
2: Oh, that sounds so t- That sounds like so much fun.
3: And get them back into your base's sack. It's never a bucket. It's always got to be get the balls and, and sack them up so that you can win carpe testiculum it's been renamed since then but i would be remiss if i didn't if i didn't sneak it in uh this so. is
2: valuable insider knowledge that uh thank you track for sharing this so exactly you could, uh, this you could have been gotten lost. that
3: one from google that's uh that's a uh, unique to this
2: podcast lost like tears in rain a beautiful moment in time <laughs> a ton of, yeah it feels like a lot of these play styles are kind of uh the, you know, the multiplayer games at the time were Halo and Call of Duty and stuff. So you had Team Deathmatch, Capture the Flag, uh, VIP Protect the Hostage, all these, uh, even stuff like, uh, can, you know, capturing control points.
3: Exactly. All
2: had variations that could be expressed in real life through the medium of nerfing.
3: No, I mean, we we also, to, to take it to, to video game game types, I mean, we played Headhunters. <laughs> we shouldn't have, but we did. It was a, a very exciting way to play. Uh, we'd also, we did a game type called Civil War, which is you just line up and you're not allowed to run and you just volley fire into the other team. That one's uh, pretty interesting. So there's, there's a lot of interesting oddities of nerf culture at this time but the game types through the forums become pretty uniform at least in the north america scene and uh a lot of that extrapolates to the other big nerfing communities uh globally but then uh then the biggest game type that i guess kind of connects us all and really blows the thing wide open is of course humans versus zombies
2: this is incredible i was this is around this era i was like aware that this was happening but i wasn't you know so, uh, this was the Walking Dead comic was out, but not like the hit TV show. But you know, we had a resurgence of zombie movies, a resurgence in uh, zombie video games, and you know, there were zombie walks that would happen around Halloween. Uh, but the humans versus zombies gameplay, in which it would literally take over the participant's life, seemed like hand built for like isolated college campuses.
3: <laughs> and it was, I mean, what a, what a time to be alive. What an amazing way to make friends at university. And uh, it really did like um, my, my early uni days are, the, the chapters aren't separated by professor or curriculum. <laughs> like it's literally one humans versus zombies storyline into another. So to to frame it for your audience here, you have to imagine that signups happen the second week of school. Let's say you're a freshman, because that's the most fun scenario here. You sign up for Humans versus Zombies. You're given a debrief by the, the weirdest, nerdiest kids at your college, <laughs> all of which have Nerf blasters and are wearing bandanas. It looks almost like a gang. Mm-hmm. But a cool gang with a boombox that you want to be a part of, because <laughs> what else are you going to do? And they explain to you that you have just signed up for the ultimate nerd trap, which is... I, I don't know how you feel about this, Jake, but I feel like LARP is the end-all, be-all nerd activity.
2: Like, uh, Yes. Literally subsuming your uh, human body into a fantastical state of mind. I mean, I think, I I understand. think that
3: LARP is, is crazier than humans... Uh, not humans versus zombies. I think that LARP is crazier than D&D. I think it surpasses Magic the Gathering. It certainly is. I have...
2: I have friends whose larping stories are like 10 times more insane and depraved and violent and chaotic than like my most uh hedonistic party friends could be.
3: Exactly. No, and it's it's true. I mean, it really these are the people who, you know, I mean, they're they're theater kids, they're athletes, they want a sport to play, they want a character to be, they really truly. And so anyway, HVZ is a way to trick college kids into joining LARP without knowing (laughs) that they're joining LARP. If somebody had told me on the front end, like, you're going to pretend to be a survivor in an apocalypse for 10 days straight, you will hide in your dorm room, eat Easy Mac, and scurry through sewer tunnels to get to engineering class on time. I would have been like, that sounds absolutely insane. I would never want to do that. But if if you sneak it in under the guise of it's a school club, An officially sanctioned thing that you can do. Um, And it is. It is a 24-7 immersive LARP experience with its own kind of culture and rules. At my university, it was a 10-day game. I know that a lot of places it's just a week, but we we couldn't get enough of it. So we had to (laughs) bookend it on long weekends. And so you start off and it's like, how do you complete your daily activities? Which in uni are pretty simple, like eat two or three times a day shower once hopefully sleep somewhere and get to class and so at the simplest cookie cutter time in your life throw in real life zombie survival apocalypse scenario and the only thing that stops you from being consumed by zombies as you sprint down the the quad is your blaster in your
2: backpack (laughs) uh at its core uh it's like any other video game with a zombies mode uh, there's groups of survivors, and uh, it usually starts with one infected person. The infected person can tag someone physically, put lay their hands on them, and then that person is now a zombie. Uh, depending on the rules, uh, humans, uh, each nerf dart blast can either stun them for a specific amount of time to give you time to run away, or I, you, you, it, it would be over way too fast if you could just kill Quote, unquote, the you
3: can't point. stop the zombies. So yeah. that's the, the core tenant of HVZ is that a blaster or a balled up sock, hopefully clean, <laughs> will stun a zombie for usually 15 minutes at a time. And that's like classic evergreen, you know, D&D first edition HVZ. Now there's every variant under the sun you could possibly imagine because every kid who's into fledgling LARP HVZ also fancies themselves a game designer. Mm-hmm. So by the time a university is on its third or second year, uh, they've already added, you know, some new fantasy elements, something from Left for Dead, something from Call of Duty, or
2: or whatever. Super zombies, but, uh, extra gr- grenades that do area of effect, uh, missions, so that you don't just hide in your room eating ramen until the last zombie's are. Well, so the
3: missions are the missions are also evergreen because you actually do need some sort of risk reward scenario to stitch the story along so that your college kids care about why they're surviving the apocalypse and forces them, like you said, to leave the, the library. I mean, if you've, if you've got me trapped in the library for five hours, I need something to leave the library for at 10 PM, like that, you know, sunset mission to, to plant the bomb, or to gather supplies or to get the reward. And the rewards are always marginal. It'll be something like the zombie stun timer extends from 15 to 20 minutes. It'll be something like an antidote that you can give one of your buddies that you lost two days ago or or what have you. But it's it's an incredible immersive experience that, like I said, I mean, it's, it's gateway LARP. It tricks you in. To
2: get a real sense of time and place for when this gameplay was emerging, um, there is a documentary available on Vimeo. You can find it easily. It's uh, just search 2007 Humans vs. Zombie Documentary on uh, Google. And it uh, kind of chronologizes the fourth official game of Humans vs. Zombies at Goucher College, which was uh, many, most people point to as the originator of this phenomenon. And not only does it give me intense flashbacks of seeing 2007 era college age nerds in their natural habitat, with all the bad fedoras that came with it. Um, it is just a incredible kind of showcase of a just shameless nerd culture that like really was unburdened before the great marvelization that kind of uh, changed the landscape as we know it. Uh, and the filmmakers of this documentary, you said uh, or before we recorded, like they went on to do stuff. I don't I don't know.
3: Yeah. So it's uh, it's interesting. So the founders, so the Goucher College guys are the inventors of HVZ and that they're the ones who decided that this role playing game was going to be a thing. It was going to happen on college campuses and it was going to be, <laughs> you know, free. Uh, that's the, the coolest thing about HVZ, in my opinion, is that the rules were written such that it was free for anyone to use. And they're actually written explicitly so that it's not uh, permissible to charge money for participants. This was really designed to be, you know, nerd culture for good, uh, designed to foster friendships and get people to, like, meet people in school that otherwise would have stayed at home playing, you know, on their computer all day. (laughs) So, uh I really, really like that about that. But they go on, uh, they they form Narwhal Studios, which is a games company, actually. And then they eventually uh, become the creators of Cards Against Humanity. So uh, they do this one really cool thing for Wait. free.
2: Are you kidding? The the guys that are in that documentary are the Cards Against Humanity people?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guys who invent humans versus zombies give it away for nothing out of the the goodness of their hearts. And then they go on to become, you know, multi-multi-millionaires. Because they also make cards against humanity. It's a really cool story.
2: Wait, if if my if my game genealogy is correct, does that mean if they're also the team that made Secret Hitler? Because goddamn, in that case, I owe them so much.
3: I, I am unaware of Secret Hitler's origins, but if they if the Secret Hitler guys are the cards against humanity guys, then yes.
2: Holy cow. So uh going back to the toy lines now that like, uh, performance, uh, kind of competitive, uh, nerf wars is happening. Uh, there's all these zombie things, even like, uh, rich bros in Silicon Valley are doing assassin games where they kind of sneaking up each other on each other in the middle of, uh, I guess charcuterie boards. I don't know what rich people do. I think
3: that's it. I think it's kill each other and, and eat water. Uh-huh.
2: Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the life, ah oh, the life. Um, we reach a kind of saturation. Nerf is more than just a specific toy brand of children of the 90s. Nerf is a omnipresent uh, kind of multinational brand. Um, they introduce the uh, zombie strike line, which at the time I remember, th- okay, this is my like pretentious English major brain talking. Um, but I, it's like, ah, ah, the downgrade. As, as a child, I dreamed of a glistening laser future. And then the children could only imagine the conflicts of today. And now the children—they pretend only to dwell in the inevitable decay of society. I thought I was very clever when I noticed that uh, with fake duct tape and fake cloth like wraps. That's dark. I think yeah. that's a really good,
3: like, cold <laughs> shot on Zoomer mentality right there through the lens of Zombie Strike. Oh goodness.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: Of course, also on the, uh, in 2013, we got the Uh, much maligned rebel line, which was uh, an attempt to do nerf for girls. Not the
3: best move to go from Seth Green and the girls think this is yucky to this is your femme fatale power plus blaster.
2: Like, oh shit, we saw the box office receipts on the Hunger Games movies. Fuck, girls have money too. Fuck, girls have money too. Shit, shit, shit. Let me tell you, there's a lot
3: of bows in the rebel
2: line. There's a lot of bows, a lot of like, Angel wings and pastels. um. The big issue is when they, the final swan song of Rebel is the
3: executives at Hasbro threw a Hail Mary and did a charm bracelet Nerf blaster line. It was like you had to buy all of the Rebel blasters to complete your charm bracelet that you would presumably wear.
2: I will it say pretty, it was pretty hard to believe. Of the Rebel line, um, there is one item that I almost have to mention because I actually think it's fucking amazing. The Rebel secret shot was a, uh, it looked, it was literally made out to be a, a pocket bright book, fuchsia yeah. pocketbook with a fake oh zipper. God and a little gem on the clasp, and it unfolded so that it basically became a uh, P90 in, in silhouette. It's a the bottom, that becomes yeah. a pump-action blaster. Yeah, it's it's hard to believe. The bottom of be the bag one. flips out and becomes like a standard shoulder stock. It looks so... It's like something a hot secret service agent would carry around. I I ruined my, my girl power moment by saying the secret service agent is hot. God damn it. I'm so flawed. God damn. I am a flawed human being. Anyway. Um, I honestly look
3: this up. I I just can't stop imagining hot secret service agents (laughs) now clutching their, their Prada purses that may or may not contain shotguns.
2: Ah, it's a move. It's a move by 2015. I feel like Nerf begins to feel the pressure from uh, the emerging airsoft and paintball communities. Finally, the, you, know, the, you realize that at around age 14, if a kid really feels the thirst for battle, there is a more dangerous world they can enter that is more socially acceptable, I think, in a lot of ways than it was in previous generations. For sure. And so we get uh, the Nerf Rival series which was a huge marketing push. I remember at the time uh, there was tons of like videos and commercials for this thing where they switched out the darts for these like little foam balls. And I, the idea was these was it what it was still safe, but it was dangerous. I, what can you tell me about the rival line? So rival
3: is, is such an interesting departure from traditional blasting in that they start marketing it in terms of the miles per hour, the darts <laughs> travel, which is an insane metric like ping pong balls (laughs) initial velocity is huge but uh you know so they're they're marketing in terms of miles per hour they've got velocity gauges on the boxes they're they're starting to really get bombastic with their marketing like the number one blasters um and so rival is their entrant into a completely different category of toy which uh as you start looking at some of the regulations that define kinetic energy and how much stored energy and then energy on target a blaster toy can lawfully have. Oh, is
2: that in, wait, is there actual laws that like state how much, yes. how many kilojoules you can put behind in a toy? What, what is it? Yep, that?
3: Um, so there's a, uh, it's, it's effectively the, the kinetic density of the impact of the round onto a pressure plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are laws that regulate how you can market and manufacture blaster products um, in those categories. A big thing is stored energy. Mm-hmm. So if there is a trigger, uh, it all goes under regulation. And if there isn't a trigger, it's not, which is why you have the uh, the elastic bow and arrow products mm-hmm. have no regulation. You can put as much power into those as you want because you're never storing the power. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the case of blaster products in particular, the, the big quest is to create market dominance at a specific kind of power ratio and then either use, you know, legal shenanigans uh, in the case of the, the glorious mothership or um, innovation to kind of beat your competition within that
2: category. So you said uh, glorious mothership, you're talking about the uh, toy conglomerate Hasbro.
3: I am. I am in fact referring to the, the creators of nerf. Uh, okay. And they're, they're very, you know, competition friendly slogans such as it's nerf or nothing. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, within the category rival is them saying, OK, we're going to leave this specific threshold for energy um, and we're going to move into the next threshold, which in this case is defined by changing the marketing from this is for all ages to this is for 14 and up. Mm. And that's why you start marketing things like safety equipment and tell people that it's not for kids. It's specifically for teenagers and. Um, Now, of course, it's up to the retailers to decide where these things go on shelves, and I would argue that a Rival Blaster is still unequivocally a toy. If Um, it's a toy,
2: then why do the commercials sound like this? Nerf Rival, competing teams red and blue. Now, Phantom Corps joins the battle
3: with the new spring action Helios, blasting with accurate high impact Rival rounds. And the compact Chronos, for battling on the run.
2: Wait, uh, so I'm confused. It's, it's, why would it still be a toy after all that hullabaloo?
3: Because uh, at the end of the day, it's it's like we talked about earlier. It's still an arms race. You're still just moving on to the next threshold. And the purpose of Rival is to beat kids with elite blasters,
1: mm. obviously. so <laughs> uh,
3: Rival having this omnidirectional sort of spherical ammo means that you have incredibly high capacity at your fingertips you don't have to reload as often as some of these box magazines you don't have to worry about meticulously loading darts you can just sort of shove the rounds in however uh they may and um and you wind up with a much higher initial velocity the ranges don't necessarily translate because drag impacts a uh, a dart less than it does a, a dimpled round but then you have you know, hop-up tabs. And the next thing you know, Adam Savage is building hoppers that hold a thousand of these things and strapping them to his blaster. And so Rival just continues this sort of, you know, household brand image for, for Nerf. And it's like, okay, well, you know, now it's harder to outgrow Nerf because now there is a teenage category for it. And now you can keep playing with these things. And in a world where, you know, you've got college kids playing humans versus zombies all the time, and you've got kids playing with your basic in-strike and elite blasters, Rival was really the final piece of the puzzle to bridge those two worlds together so that you can go from, you know, (laughs) effectively toy to LARP and with some sort of team-based blaster battle thing in the middle that, like you said, is it may not be as socially acceptable is like i play paintball on the weekends Mm. but it's it's definitely better than i play with mavericks Um,
2: (laughs) so the i'm i'm glossing over a lot of things because the uh the role play thing is still involved you know if you have a within these safety lands you can uh have star wars nerf blasters you can have marvel nerf blasters you can have uh Fake Game of Thrones nerf blasters with the dragon power system. So
3: you you touched on it earlier, but Hasbro owns nerf. They also own, you know, all of the Star Wars toy properties. They own all of the Dungeons and Dragons toy properties. And what kind of monopoly would you be if you weren't taking advantage of all of your in-house brands to market to all of your in-house fandoms? There's there's G.I. Joe tie ins. There's all sorts of good stuff. We, we did sadly miss the My Little Pony Nerf blasters, though. That never happened.
2: Uh, it's because Rebel tanked and they didn't realize that it was not <laughs> little girls watching My Little Pony at the time. Oh, goodness. Which is an episode we might never do because I literally cannot unpack a can of worms that sealed tight and that gigantic. So I guess what I want to talk about now is how the online Nerf community, uh, through channels like yourself, through the rise of 3D printing, and through uh, uh, kind of... This this there's almost a uh, there's almost a new community that has emerged online that is almost Hasbro independent, and I'm wondering how that came about.
3: So this is this is such a fascinating story, and it's it's really multifaceted. So I'll try and I guess dilute it down, but I guess to to touch on the 3D printing, I mean I can't think of a single hobby that 3D printing hasn't and the ease of acquisition as it's gotten cheaper as it's gotten easier and more support. I can't think of anything that 3D printing hasn't touched yet and changed in some way. Like I was at FNM and I saw a guy with a 3D printed deck box. <laughs> deck boxes aren't even expensive, but that's a thing <laughs> that he was able to customize and make himself. And most nerds are makers. Mm-hmm. And so the easier you make the tools of acquisition, the more people are going to make cool stuff. In the case of blasters, it's unprecedented. So like as cool as that example is, You have to realize that back in the day, we are taking drill bits, rotary pipe cutters and Dremels, and we are carving PVC pipes and epoxy putty to create custom ramps, catches, feeds and mechanisms out of things that were never designed to be toys. And so all of a sudden having a magical robot that doesn't just make it once for me, but also lets me send it to you or share it with him or give it to a guy in Singapore is unprecedentedly cool. And sort of freed us from this dependency on injection molded shells. Mm. So up until this point in the hobby, we've been heavily, heavily reliant on what's Hasbro going to make this year. Out of the 10 things that they make, which two are good enough to use in a war? And of the two that are good enough to use, what are we going to do to them? How will we make them better? And what in our existing toolbox of both knowledge and readily available materials can we do to them to get them to an FPS threshold or an onboard ammo capacity threshold to make them not even necessarily competitive because at this point in time, competitive tournaments haven't even like started yet, Mm -hmm. but um, how do we make them more fun (laughs) ultimately is the, uh, is the thing. And there's, there's a personal element to that where like for me in particular, like something is more fun if I worked on it a little bit myself, Mm -hmm. like I'm definitely a, a tuner. In that regard,
2: I mean, you're showing up to a live action, uh, you know, outdoor meet and you want people to see in your hands is something that no one else on, well, uh, you know, within a threshold, no one else on earth has, has in their hands. Exactly.
3: Exactly. Everybody wants to be special. (laughs) I don't think that that's a unique human experience. And that's one really cool thing about, uh, the hobby is that if you look at these things like airsoft and paintball everybody's using the same thing Mm. in airsoft. Everybody uses an M 16 derivative, AEG or gas powered gun like that in paintball. Everybody's using effectively a, you know, laser uh, eye sensor, high rate of fire, um, (laughs) HPA powered marker that looks effectively the same, no matter what color it's anodized. The coolest thing about Nerf is that it is truly still a maker space full of individuals who paint their blasters and mod their blasters in a way that really defines or represents them or their gameplay or their style to the degree that like, we will have kids doing battle where one kid made his special camo pattern from his call of duty skin that he really (sighs) likes. And he's across the field from a kid in a hiccup costume who made a blaster that looks like, you know, uh, toothless from how to train your dragon. And, you know, I mean, they, those guys get along together. They see each other you know, once a week or once a month and they they're playing the same sport by the same rules with the same people. And that is truly incredible. But uh, the, the divorce from Hasbro happened, I guess, about as quickly as it could with the technology that was presented, because there was nothing ever. There's no greater example of how Hasbro feels about us than what they print on every single one of these toys, which is, you know, do not modify this plaster <laughs> product. Do not shoot at you know animals or people, etc. It's in the paperwork. It's on the cardboard box, and then it's literally molded onto the plastic itself. So they were, I guess, they were always aware, but never we do truly not saw. value
2: your individual level of fun as much as we value our not getting sued
3: <laughs> and and fair play. Um, <laughs> but uh, so because because of that, I guess disagreement of interests where you know we're a hobby of people who really feel like we have the right to repair tinker with and play with anything that we purchase and (laughs) they really wish we wouldn't um the, the sooner we can depart from that the uh the the better off it was for our hobby and the easier it was for us to to share kind of our designs and our design sort of language which is these are the blasters that we want to make for our game types and now that they're completely 3d printed and completely hardware based and most of them are completely open source uh it's really exploded into that that stem category in a way that you know if everybody has to build their thing based on a long shot Mm. uh it never could have been so so
2: what is a just as an example what is a popular uh design that kind of made its way through the community through 3d printed models and what does it do so much better than a mass-produced uh nerf toy.
3: So I think that the the most important one to shout out would be the Caliburn, which is of course, you know, named after Arthurian legend, but uh <laughs> the Caliburn is a community open source design pioneered by a guy named Captain Slug. And what it does <laughs> of is it course. takes advantage of yeah, he's great. Um It takes advantage of the only thing that Hasbro did that we couldn't do as easily, which is readily available mass-manufactured magazines. Mm -hmm. And it took that magwell and attached it to a sealed breech system where the darts are trapped with their plunger and their barrel. Uh, So it uses a sealed breech system. And then the biggest thing is it uses these massive plunger dimensions and large large, uh, high-kilogram rating springs that we had been using in our homemade you know, PVC-based blasters for a really long time. And so it was effectively a 3D-printed frame for the most popular completely homemade designs at the time. Mm. And by being open source, as soon as Slug sort of released it into the world, it was iterated into oblivion and has become this sort of iconic language of what a 3D-printed Nerf blaster would look like, which is a big pump-action springer with a massive spring, a large plunger tube, and the only piece of it that says Nerf is the, the butt plate on the magazine.
2: So if a standard Nerf gun, if a rival, like high performance, you know, uh, if on the mainstream toy line, the most they can do is shoot a little ball at, say, 100 FPS... Right. Uh what is what can a caliburn do?
3: So a caliburn's base performance is about two hundred and twenty FPS, but <laughs> they can go all the way up to three twenty, which is starting to get into like paintball territory.
2: <laughs> like like it could leave a welt if you wanted to.
3: It It absolutely would. We do not have minimum engagement distances. So if you, Jake, were bunkering (laughs) me, edge behind cover, you would have to shoot me from five feet away and I would probably have a little dime-sized bruise by the end of the day.
2: Damn, that's not... I mean, I would never use one because I would somehow hit my cat unintentionally and it would traumatize it and I'd be like, Why? Why did I want a cool homemade plastic Uh springy-gunny thing? Why? But that is... That's, again, it's just, whether it is pretending to have a machine gun or pretending you're a superhero shooting blasts out of your hands, just the idea of physically affecting something from a distance is a cool, empowering feeling, and if... It really doesn't matter if it is just like a piece of foam or a lead slug at the end of the day for your to brain is something. <laughs> well, I, truly so, I mean, believe. that's the magic
3: of the hobby is every, every two or three years, some company will decide that they're going to make laser tag cheaper <laughs> and they'll, they'll make this, they'll do, they'll do an entire ecosystem. It'll usually be pretty expensive because they're building an ecosystem and want to make sure that they recover some of their initial investment and they'll launch it. And time after time after time, it always flops. And the reason that it flops is that people don't realize that the cool part of the laser tag experience has nothing to do with the laser tag blasters. Pretending to blast somebody (laughs) is actually really lame. The cool part of laser tag is going to an arena, eating really crappy pizza, wearing a vest that weighs 20 pounds and running through liquid fog. (laughs) Like That's what makes laser tag fun. Um, But without the arena, it's not that cool. Uh, the part that is cool is actually firing a projectile into your buddy at the other side of the yard mm. and it'd be like, good one. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, whatever whatever imagination you attach to that, like that quintessential, like reach out and touch somebody experience is, uh, is always going to be a lot of fun. Like that's kinetic play elements at its absolute finest.
2: Kinetic play elements. Ooh, that's a good, that is a, you know what? I mean, I understand you're trying. Foam flingers has a certain certain uh, non copyrighted ring to it, but kinetic enthusiast is also. I'm just throwing that out there.
3: I like it. I like it. I'll run it by the. Uh, I'll run it by the the higher council of foam flingers. And we'll see what we come up with. <laughs>
2: so uh, you've been on YouTube for. I, I get. I, okay, so Nerf. We have we have covered Nerf, and uh, before we go, I just want to take this opportunity because. Uh, you are a content creator. You've been doing it for how many years at this point? I mean, it's every every bit
3: of 15 years, I think. It's it's quite a bit. I feel old saying it. Like
2: you you were there for YouTube 1.0 where it was anime episodes cut into thirds. I, I
3: was 360p. a beta user of YouTube pre-Google acquisition when you had to watch Family Guy three episodes at a time. Yeah.
2: And that whole time, like you've been engaging through this community. And that audience is like it's very interesting because Nerf is something that everybody has experienced. It's as I I pointed out in our Lego episode that what makes it fascinating is that even you know not everyone's an engineer, not everyone is a ballistics expert, not everyone is a physicist, but everyone has an innate understanding of the forces involved in a Nerf gun and has an, or understands the innate strength of two interlocked Lego bricks. And so there's a lot of room for spectacle. So many videos online are like, uh, you know, oh, I made this Nerf gun 800 times bigger. Or like, oh, I made a Beyblade that can tear a house apart. Oh. Like, what do you think it is about Nerf content that has people fascinated? I
3: mean, I think like I alluded to earlier, I think that part of it is we're 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 the nostalgia generation. Mm-hmm. We love toys. We love collectibles. We like that it's finally OK to be kind of childish and play with toys. Um, a little nerdy i uh, I think that like I said kinetic play elements are something that'll just never get old you uh there's something magical about your toy doing something that you play together the same way that like you know we could we could play a board game online any time of day with anybody on planet earth but there's nothing like getting together Friday night with the guys at the kitchen table and uh and rolling dice so I think that it's it's very special in that way but But Nerf in particular is like a pop culture icon is, you know, I mean, it's a 50 year brand with, you know, multiple generations of fans and familiarity. And that's, that's the secret sauce is anytime you're talking about it, people understand what you mean. It's culturally iconic.
2: Another thing that I feel like your channel specifically does very well is it has a very sincere consumer advocate uh, uh, disposition about it. You're not afraid of saying, This particular uh, uh, design does not work right. This particular toy is less satisfying. This particular toy cuts some design uh, corners that you're disappointed in. And I find that very refreshing. It feels like a lot of times when a content creator is uh, inexorably uh, kind of aligned with a specific brand, they're a little bit, you know, they have the kids' gloves on a little too much because they don't want to be cast into the wilderness and not get you know, the special treatment or trips to toy fair, or I don't, I'm not, I don't even know what you, what your relationship is, but, um, do you feel that pressure sometimes or is your audience so, there?
3: I mean, this is, this is an interesting take for the podcast, but I, I actually sincerely, I'm not going to get emotional about it. It means a lot to me that you say that, uh, because that level of integrity, uh, is both very important to me and has come at, you know, terrific professional cost. uh, <laughs> There is there is a point in the process of, you know, becoming Drac and acquiring uh, all of this knowledge and, and responsibility that I, I take very seriously and I'm very grateful for uh, from my audience where, you know, Hasbro does decide that you're a valuable piece on the board and that they would like to own you. And there is a, a period of time where I worked very closely with them. And at this point in time, I do not uh, because of... What you're alluding to right there, uh, there
2: is... Quality, honest videos? Yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, measured independence is uh, is expensive in some mm. ways. Let's just leave it
2: at that. So from your uh, perspective right now, if someone's been listening to this episode and they've got that foam fever in their hearts uh, kind of fluttering for the first time in years, uh, from your personal recommendations, like what is a go-to kind of... Uh, rebound device or a, uh, company or design or just, uh, you know, what's, what's a good way to get, what is a good first uh, re-entry point right now available on the market for someone that wants to get back into it? Oh man.
3: So like a product specifically.
2: Yeah. 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 If someone wants to, you know, or to, you know, if someone goes online and is like, hell yeah, I like this one that looks like a dragon and, uh, Uh maybe don't go with that one. Maybe go with a different one.
3: So ironically, uh, and, and, This has nothing to do with my relationship with Hasbro right now. It's just there's a really exciting thing happening in the space over the course of the last two and a half years where competitive products have been very performance and consumer focused. And they're really, really exciting in terms of what they do, in terms of their value, uh, how much they cost versus how much performance they have. Uh, how well designed they are, the structural integrity of them, and then more importantly than anything else, how easy they are to modify and tinker with yourself. It seems like in some ways, this, you know, resurgence of these quote-unquote pro blasters uh, have been uh, have been almost designed with enthusiasts in mind. Yeah. and it's really exciting to uh, to see things like, you know, compatibility with magazines that that company doesn't sell mm. or. Uh, screws that you pull out and then all of a sudden you can replace the spring at the drop of a hat or you know compatibility with mil spec accessories in some cases which is the (laughs) ultimate tactical um but also hell yeah i
2: want an undermount real grenade launcher on my nerf gun
3: i mean you could put an m16 stock on some of these toys (laughs) now which is absolutely crazy uh if you would explain that to me when i was starting my youtube channel i never would have thought we'd see the day but uh There's a very cheap example of that that's, you know, on the internet, you could find it, I guess, uh, at walmart.com or I think on Amazon, but it's actually on shelves at Walmart called the Aeon Pro. And for the low, low cost of $25, you can can get in with a pistol that hits like a fire truck (laughs) and looks pretty cool. And it fires both full-length and half-length darts. Ooh, we didn't adapter. get into that. The
2: half-length darts are the good darts. I, I learned that. Yeah, I learned that. You got to right? go with the half-lengths.
3: It does It does a lot of stuff really well. And then if that is appealing at the $25 price point, there's an even better version of that. That's like a full-on, almost DMR rifle class <laughs> blaster called the Nexus Pro that you can find in the same places. And I think that those, those are really the best products on shelf right now. Uh no matter no matter who you are i mean if you're 9 and you just want the coolest gun mm-hmm. that's the coolest gun and if you're you know 29 and you want something that you think would really you know be a blaster for all ages i think that that's the same sort of category
2: ooh i'm if
3: you're 99 it's going to be hard to prime i'm going to be honest they are they are a little tougher
2: i mean and i mean the 99 year old just has his old thompson from the war he doesn't need nerf that's fine <laughs> And the 99 year old woman has her rebel hand purse. That also is a fully
3: she's ready to go. Yeah, exactly. It's deployed and ready. Drac.
2: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your expertise. Uh, we've hit the plug section. Can we please get some plugs on where we can find you online and how we can support your endeavors?
3: Oh, well, uh, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed being a part of your podcast. I like the humor that you brought to it. I love (laughs) the nostalgia trip. Uh, let me know when you're doing just the 90s toy episode. I'd love to come back. I, uh, I've i been making YouTube content for a very long time over at youtube.com/lord draconical. I'm Lord Drac on Instagram. And then I think that the best way to support my endeavors is I am the proud owner of foamproshop.com, uh, which is where I am kind of moving this, this competitive nerf category into the future with whatever powers I, I have available to me. I own 60 3D printers. Uh, we make uh, kits and options and accessories so that you can play exactly the same way I do in my videos. Uh, that's foamproshop.com. And if you, uh, if you place an order there, I'll be sure to include some very some very foam-flinging morale patches for your audience.
2: Oh, you heard it here first, folks. It's uh, literally the only benefit ever to listening to this podcast. (laughs) Now you have something besides weird looks at parties when you share that you've listened to this show. Obviously, I mentioned it before, but if you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, For $5 a month, you get a weekly bonus episode. Uh, for $15 a month, you can join the Sunday Study Group, which is an exclusive live stream where we cover future topics and hang out. And it is uh, honestly the highlight of my week. Uh, it really helps focus us. And uh, if we're playing a video game, we play, I mean, sorry, if we're covering a video game, we play a video game together. If we're doing a movie, we do a watch party. And uh, for stuff like uh, the Nerf episode, we just kind of talked about our favorite blasters growing up, watched some weird, bad 90s ads. And uh, it was gen- it's always a fun time. So I highly recommend it. Uh, if you are so enamored by my voice that you want to hear more of it, go to youtube.com slash Puppet which is my new VTuber endeavor. Uh, watch some of the backlog if you can. I need those hours watched to make monetized, uh, and, uh, follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young, uh, for all my thoughts and plops and little bits of research nuggets that I collect throughout the week. Uh, but until next time, uh holden will be back next time by the way uh his baby is now well over a month old she's she's got it figured out we, we can keep doing a podcast together now uh always be whizzing and never stop bruising and thank you so much and have a great week this show
3: is made possible by listeners like you Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.